0: You're listening to Vernacular Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to vernacular podcast. This is season four, episode four, and we have a lot to discuss today, including more on Pokemon Go. So if you enjoyed last week's conversation on this latest craze, I hope you'll enjoy today's. We're also going to talk about brain training. But before we do that, here is another lightning round.
0: If you listened to last week's episode, you remember that Zach did something a little bit different. He gave me a lightning round inspired by Bon Appetit's food cast. And basically, the person on the receiving end of the lightning round answers a series of either-or questions. And you have to pick one or the other. You just, you can't, you don't have time to think about it. You're just given two options, and you have to choose one or the other.
1: And you have like a second to choose.
0: Yeah, you just have to go for it. Just That's your why it's gut called reaction. a lightning round. Lightning round. It's as fast as lightning. And the, answer, the question that they ask every one of their guests is butter or olive oil. So in the spirit of Bon Appetit's Foodcast, we will ask that question first, and then we'll go through a bunch of other questions that really don't have to do with food necessarily (laughs) right? and may or may not relate to our guest who's decided to call in. So we have a guest today who's called in and wants us to give her a lightning round. Welcome to the show, Brittany. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you.
1: Brittany, you are our first contestant on the lightning round. And by contestant, I mean, you're just going to do a lightning round. It's not really a contest. (laughs) Yeah, not
2: really. Okay. okay. I was nervous there for a second. (laughs) Right.
1: Well, you heard the first lightning round that I gave to Sally. She was the the guinea pig of our lightning round. So you're the first caller to do it. And if you remember in that lightning round with Sally, the first question was, olive oil or
0: butter? And you can learn from my mistakes by just going for it. Gut reaction. Don't even think about it. Don't overanalyze. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. But now you've had now mess. you've had so
1: much time to think about olive oil or butter. Yeah, so. that's true.
0: Okay, ready, go. <laughs> uh if
2: you're asking me that one.
1: Yes, that's it.
2: Olive oil. That's olive oil.
1: Okay. Burgers or pizza?
2: Pizza.
1: Birthday or Christmas? Uh
2: Christmas.
1: New York City or Philadelphia?
2: Philadelphia, definitely. I'm actually in Philadelphia
1: right now. Oh, what do you know? Do you live there?
2: Uh, yeah. Well, I live actually in New Jersey, but it's not that far. It's like an hour from where I live.
1: So, so such Here a perfect buddy. question for you then. New Jersey, close to New York it's, City it's and Philly. almost
0: like we knew. So
1: you're like a resident expert.
0: Wow. <laughs> okay, keep going. All
1: right, next question. Hummus and pita or chips and salsa? Ooh.
2: Chips and salsa.
1: Coffee or tea?
2: Coffee, definitely coffee
1: running or rock climbing rock climbing trump or hillary
0: neither (laughs) we'll let you get away with that (laughs) given zach's article on medium we'll let you get away with that one (laughs) all right (laughs) thanks thanks i appreciate
1: it all right transatlantic airplane ride or road trip
2: oh definitely oh Road trip. Yeah, road trip.
1: Okay. Summer or winter? Summer. All right. Final question. The Office or Gilmore Girls?
2: Man, they so different. Tick, tock, uh, tick. Gilmore Girls, Gilmore Girls. All that, right. was like my, that was like my gut. <laughs> you got to go with, go with your gut. Yeah, I picked that question
0: for the last one since they just came out that trailer for the new Gilmore Girls movie that's coming out I know, in November. I saw it. I'm so
2: excited. I'm so excited, it's too. It's going to be great.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've never yeah, seen an episode, I for
2: November 25th. I know. Yes. We well, you have to be caught
1: up before it
0: comes out oh wow that's a challenge
2: Ooh.
1: <laughs> Ooh. I don't know about Dude, you're gonna watch <laughs> it
0: with me right of
1: course, of course <laughs> well, well, well Brittany that concludes our lightning round thanks yeah, so much for calling for in playing hopefully you had fun yeah thanks
2: so much I did it was a lot of fun actually I really enjoyed it thanks for having me on
1: the show since you're a Philly resident or a New Jersey resident but you said Philly give us a little bit of inside knowledge here why do you prefer Philly to New York City
2: Philadelphia. It's I mean it's a lot smaller, so it's more manageable. But because of that it also to me just feels more personal. It's less overwhelming. And also I think Philadelphia has fantastic food. I would probably say better than what's in New York. Although I realize New York is huge.
1: But Yeah, I well this... I just
2: like I like the local meal of Philadelphia. I don't really Feel like
0: I'm in a huge city whenever I'm in Philly. Yeah, I totally get that.
1: Yeah, and this uh, yeah. it's interesting you mentioned the food scene because the inspiration for the lightning round comes from the Bon Appetit food cast and that podcast has actually done a lot of stuff with Philly area chefs and it does seem like there's quite a food scene in Philly. So.
2: Yeah yeah there totally is i don't i think i've read this somewhere although i don't know where i read it but at that philadelphia is basically like one of the food capitals of the world i think but definitely at the u.s it was surprisingly higher than i thought because i knew nothing about philadelphia before i was here um and was like really surprised by the variety and just quality of the food i love it
1: so if we're visiting philly what's the one spot we have to go to
2: well, I think you went there last weekend, but <laughs> Dizengoff is incredible. Like the best hummus I've
1: ever had. Um, awesome. It was
2: amazing. Yeah. Diz and
1: Goff. Yeah, that's, I mean, it is pretty amazing. We have been there. And it's <laughs> <Yeah>. great.
0: <laughs> and I'm going back again next time. It's going
1: to be so good. Yeah. Well, Bernie, enjoy yeah. all the Golf visits between now and whenever it is that we can make it back to Philly. And thanks for playing our lightning round.
2: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: As Brittany alluded to, we were in Philly last weekend, and we had so much fun. We spent a lot of time with family, but we also took the opportunity to check out some of Philadelphia's great eateries.
1: We did. We were there in town for the wedding of my brother and our new sister-in-law. Yeah, so, it was
0: really fun. Esther got to be one of the little flower girls and Zach was the best man and he gave an awesome toast.
1: I'm pretty sure that they don't listen to this podcast, but if you do, congratulations, Skylar and Noel. <laughs>
0: um and I wish that I had an entire video of Zach's toast to share with all of you, but I only got the end, so I'm not gonna share but that. But we're not even gonna share the end. <laughs> no. <laughs> It was just so amazing. I want everyone to see how awesome you (laughs) were. Moving on. (laughs) Anyways, we ate really well while we were in Philly. We are kind of on a a Michael Solomonov kick, and he is a restaurateur and a chef, primarily in Philadelphia, but he's expanding nationwide.
1: He is an Israeli-American, and we first became familiar with him through Sally's fandom of the... Bon Uh, Bon Appetit Foodcast, Foodcast, yeah. Which
0: we just mentioned with Brittany because that's where we got the inspiration for the lightning round. Right.
1: And Sally's been a faithful listener of Bon Appetit's foodcast for a long time, and she first heard about Michael Solomonov on there. And then we saw him compete on Iron Chef against one of the Iron Chefs. He lost, but it was a good battle. And we just became very interested in his style, which is very unique because he tries to incorporate Israeli food in pretty much everything he does. And Bon Appetit calls him the chickpea whisperer because he makes hummus that is unbelievable. And so we really had to try this for ourselves. Yeah. So that's exactly what we did.
0: So he has five different restaurants in Philly. And we were only able to make it to two of them, unfortunately. But—
1: We tried three. They were amazing. But we had a party that was just a little bit too big for Zahav, which is his flagship Israeli restaurant.
0: Yeah, he— He um, provides modern Israeli cuisine there, and we're definitely going to go next time, and we recommend it from everything that we've heard. We did make it to his hummus restaurant.
1: It's called a Chumasiyah, which is basically a hummus bar.
0: Yeah, (laughs) or if I'm really going to be authentic, yeah, hummus.
1: Chumasiyah, (laughs) Chumasiyah.
0: And he just serves hummus. That's it. But – the hummus is incredible. It's just like if you like hummus, it's mind-blowing hummus. It's incredible. It's so fluffy and light. It's whipped. I think he whips his tahina with water to make it really airy.
1: And he soaks the chickpeas with a mixture of baking soda and water because it helps the water permeate the shell of the of the chickpea.
0: Yeah, and and they actually peel their chickpeas individually.
1: Because peeling them helps the hummus <laughs>
0: to be even smoother. <laughs> yeah, than it comes would out be a lot otherwise. than it
1: would be if the shells were on.
0: Yeah, so this place is called Dizengoff, and if you live in New York or visit New York, there's also a Dizengoff at Chelsea Market. And I think he said on Bon Appetit they're expanding to Nashville, maybe Florida.
1: They're at least looking at it, yeah. Yeah. I think so.
0: So we went there, which was amazing. We um, had two different types. They have different kinds of hummus. They have lamb and tahina and turnip and squash. It changes daily. right? So we had two there. And then we went over to Federal Donuts, which is really not – it doesn't have an Israeli flair at all. Um, it's just donuts and fried chicken.
1: Yeah, that's right. I guess I misspoke earlier and said all of his stuff incorporates Israeli influences or Jewish influences. But I guess it's not entirely true because he has a barbecue place and he has this donuts place.
0: Yeah, I guess those are the two anomalies.
1: So there are exceptions, but most of his stuff does. And certainly his do, uh, flagship stuff does sort of showcase his Jewish uh, training. and Heritage. Right. But the federal donut donuts, donuts place was so good. Yeah, The best donut of my life. They would make them hot for you right there.
0: Yeah, you could get the fancy donuts which were pre-made and those had different flavors, but we just went for the fresh hot donuts and we watched them make it.
1: And then they handed they covered it to them us. in brown sugar and cinnamon. And it was so still good. hot.
0: It was it was the best donut that I've ever had in my life.
1: It it sort of made me appreciate donuts in a yeah. whole different way. Me too. And it sort of ruined me for like Dunkin' Donuts and Krispy Kreme for the rest yeah, of my life.
0: Nothing, nothing in comparison. They actually had good coffee too.
1: I mean, it, it was so it was so good, but so different that it just makes me think that that kind of donut is just in a different category, category than altogether. Sort of the Krispy Kreme Dunkin' Donuts, the pre-made it, donuts. It's, it's fundamentally different in the texture, in the freshness, uh, in, certainly in the freshness. Yeah, in the taste on the outside of the donut really good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Making me want one now. And then we also tried their fried chicken sandwich, which was really good. I mean, we we go to Chick-fil-A a lot, so we know chicken sandwiches, but this one was really good and it was pretty simple too. I mean, it was just pickle, some kind of mayo sauce, um, just American
1: cheese, kind
0: of classic potato bun. Yep. And but yeah, it was really good. Yeah. I thought I the donut was
1: better than the chicken sandwich, but yeah, they also had go really good coffee. Donut. So mm-hmm. donuts and coffee at Federal Donuts definitely something we highly recommend.
0: And if you want to experience some of the cuisine inspired by the Jewish diaspora, you can go to Abe Fisher, which is actually right next door to Dizengoff. Right. So have hummus and then go next door to Abe Fisher. Right. And then go somewhere else in town for Zahav. I'm not sure where that is in relation. Uh, it's
1: in the historic district. OK. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of coffee, let's talk about contemporary preoccupations.
0: Yes. We have th- – that was actually our tip of the week, too. I guess we never really said that.
1: Oh what? Go to Dizengoff.
0: Yeah, we'll just go to Philadelphia and eat. Right, go at to Philly. Salmo- go to Salmono's <laughs> Salmono's restaurants. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> check out the lineup of Michael Salamanos' restaurants. Have you? Did you mention all of them? What they are already?
0: Um, I think we did. We'll just so the list is Zahav,
1: which is the flagship, Dizengoff. Yep.
0: Federal Donuts. Yep. Abe Fisher. Yep. And Percy Street Barbecue. Five. So, anyways, that's our tip of the week. And our contemporary preoccupation this week, literally just in the past couple of days, is bulletproof coffee.
1: Yeah. And we know this is not new. And we're certainly not the yeah, first people like to try this. Five years late to the trend. Definitely <laughs> late to the trend. <laughs> but it's really good. Yeah. And it's I've a always surprising thing. I've heard about this before, but we've never actually tried it. And Sally had a friend show her uh, what it tasted like. Uh, earlier earlier last week
0: yeah and i was so excited about it so she told me the proportions and told me exactly what she does and then i came home and i was like zach we need to try this and it's supposed to slow the release of the caffeine so if you're at all sensitive caffeine or you don't want that jolt to be quite so to, so strong i'm pretty in the sensitive and so
1: when i have a cup of coffee I feel fine. I feel fine. And then I spike. You're
0: just wired. And I'm
1: super wired and shaky and jittery.
0: So because you're adding in grass-fed butter and coconut oil, it's supposed to slow the release of the caffeine a little bit.
1: So you brew the coffee and then you literally put it into a blender and add butter and coconut oil. Yeah. sounds so weird, but it's really, really good. And it
0: makes it frothy. So it's kind of like a latte. It's as though you added cream to it, but you don't have to. And then my friend adds a little bit of vanilla and sometimes puts in a little sugar, too. Um, And so we added a little bit of vanilla into ours, and it's really, really good. Very good. So, yeah, that's our our new kick, our new contemporary preoccupation, and we recommend you try it.
1: Very tasty. I'm not sure about the, like, long-term effects of drinking a cup of Bulletproof coffee every day.
0: Oh, you think it would be bad for you?
1: I don't know. I just can't imagine that having that much – well, I don't know. I guess there there are different schools of thought on this. I know know. definitely 1990s mentality was – Low fat and everything. Right. But there's been a lot of research now saying fat is good for you, particularly right. for preserving the uh, longevity of brain cells, things and like that. aren't the
0: fats in coconut oil and butter different?
1: They are. They're one definitely... is unsaturated
0: and one saturated? I think so. Yeah. I'm so, not sure which is which. I don't know. We did – the proportions, I guess, technically are a tablespoon of each per serving, and we just did a tablespoon of each per two servings. So that's what my friend does too, and it seems like plenty. I can't imagine it being more creamy than it is. Maybe it would be
1: even better. <laughs> what you want is actually a one-to-one ratio between coffee and butter. <laughs> oh, my word.
0: That sounds terrible. It would be a smoothie. We should
1: find an expert and bring him oh. on and ask him about the health benefits of Bulletproof coffee.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. that sounds good. <laughs> but, yeah, I check also, it out. Probably the science behind it, too, because I probably misspoke when I say that it like slows the release of the caffeine. It probably like slows the effect of it on your blood sugar more. I, think but... it,
1: I don't really know. I My understanding was that it slows the uptake of caffeine. Okay. So it All slows, right. So maybe i right. It moderates the way your body absorbs the caffeine.
0: All right, so if there are any experts on bulletproof coffee out there, maybe we're free just totally to wrong. <laughs>
1: maybe it doesn't affect any of that at all. It's just actually just, it's really just a way to make the coffee taste good. Yeah,
0: yeah, I don't know.
1: But yeah, check out Bulletproof Coffee. And uh, Sally already gave the proportions of stuff to try out. So try it out. Let us know what you think good or not good.
0: All right, moving on to Pokemon Go. I wanna be the very best, like no one ever was. To
2: catch them is my. To train them is my call
1: All right, we're back on Vernacular Podcast, and we're here with Alexi Sargent, who is an assistant editor at First Things uh, and also writes at the American Conservative. And I highly recommend his work if you haven't uh, read some of what he's done already. But Alexi's on here because we asked him to come on and talk to us about Pokemon Go. And if you've listened to the last episode of Vernacular Podcast, you heard Leah Labresco's great interview about how she converted from atheism to Catholicism. Uh, and uh, you also heard us talk about Pokemon Go now, kind of a weird connection here <laughs> turns out that uh Alexei here is the fiance of Leah, so they're uh gonna be married off soon and congratulations on that front alexi and also welcome to the show
3: uh thank you on both counts
1: <laughs> definitely now uh on this Pokemon Go topic, we asked you on because in our last episode, we were pretty hard on Pokemon Go. <laughs> we started the show uh talking about the question the editorial question of the week of whether or not or whether Pokemon go has made the world a better or a worse place. And we were pretty skeptical of any claim that it has made the world a better place, but I've read some of the things that you've written, particularly in first things and the American conservative. And I know that you have a different take on this than we do. So I'll turn this question over to you. Has Pokemon go made the world a better or a worse place?
3: Yeah, I think you can make a very good argument that it's made the world a better place. Uh, a lot of how it's done that is revealing different potentials. So I argued that uh, part of the appeal of Pokemon Go is the way it draws people out uh, to play this video game in the you know wide world outdoors and in a way that uh, connects them to other people whom they run into in the course of playing Pokemon Go. It uh, seeds the city with different focal points that become... Uh, natural places for conversations to start between strangers, because they're all engaged in the shared project of catching them all, the objective of every Pokemon game. But if you're, when you're playing Pokemon Go, you're not just collecting the imaginary creatures called Pokemon. You also end up collecting knowledge about the city that surrounds you. In Manhattan, Pokemon Go has led me to discover historical sites and markers that I wouldn't have come across otherwise, because... The game works by letting you gather resources like Pokeballs that you throw to catch Pokemon. You gather these resources from Pokestops, which are attached to real world locations that you have to travel to to uh, collect the resources they can offer. And the Pokestops can be uh, statues, public art, uh, places of historical interest and That, I think, is uh, one of the key ways it's making the world a better place, just by highlighting the important things that are in the world that we take for granted or walk by. Suddenly, because we're playing this game, there's uh, more of an impetus to discover these things that are there.
1: So I take your evidence here as instructive, but it's also, I think you would have to admit, anecdotal, right? I mean, it's stories that you have personally from when you've been out playing Pokemon Go. So. Two questions immediately come to my mind: one, do you think you are a unique case because you are a uh, a pretty learned person who can appreciate uh some of the things around you the the fine architecture that you might see in New York that you didn't notice before, et cetera Do you think that that is something that is typical of of every Pokemon go player or most Pokemon go players? Uh, and second, have you made meaningful connections in this game or basically has anything gone further than just, oh, hi, you're playing Pokemon Go and trying to catch the same Pokemon that I am? Uh, you know, I think you mentioned in, in one of your uh, stories, uh, people sharing phone chargers. I mean, have you had something more substantive in terms of human connections arise from playing Pokemon Go?
3: Ooh, good questions. Both. Um, let me try to let me try to address them. I I don't think I'm. A total anomaly, right? I think it would be kind of hubristic for me to claim that, oh, the game is good, but only for me or people very like me. <laughs> uh, I I hear stories uh, from kind of the broader world of uh, the ways the game has uh, tapped into these things that are good. So, a friend of mine who's an Episcopal priest is serving, uh, uh, starting off in a, a church that's in the historical section of uh, Schenectady. And he was hearing from his neighbors that because of the game, uh, their local businesses have been reinvigorated. There's a corner cafe that is next to a pokey stop, and it's seen this huge uh, upswing in business from people, you know, who are playing the game and stopping there. I think it's kind of like um, the chessboards that you see in public parks, right? Because they sort of invite you to go to like. Uh, Play and discover while you're in this public space. There's definitely something there that goes beyond just people who are, you know, nerds like me, right? There's kind of uh, a pitch for every brand of nerd and geek that is interested in playing this Pokemon game. Yeah, well, let's um,
1: take this. Let's take this chessboard analogy a little bit farther because when I sit down to play a game of chess, I'm sitting across the table from someone, and I, I can look at them and have a conversation directly with them over a shared game. Uh, and the game of chess is one that really, I think, enhances the mind and encourages you to think in certain ways. It's, I would say, not quite the same as, you know, playing an augmented reality game on your phone where you're doing what, what, is, a, what is a fun, but I think ultimately a pretty useless skill. um and i i don't i don't mean to be too harsh on i mean maybe i'm wrong on this maybe actually there's i mean maybe there's a good strategy in pokemon go that i'm just not aware of but i think it's a it's a different experience than playing a shared game of chess when you're talking about people who are on their own phones and they can look up to say hi to one another and acknowledge each other's presence but ultimately they return to their phones to play really what is their own game even if it's played in proximity to other people
3: yeah, no, I think that's a that's a really good point to think about what exactly uh, the mechanics of the game are. Uh, I guess in in Counterpoint, I'd say there was a piece uh, recently in the Wall Street Journal by Christopher Mims that talks about how actually the kind of secret of Pokemon Go's social appeal is the parallel pre- play aspect. So there's no there's no competitive pressure to it. You know, unlike a game of chess, you're not locked in. Uh, you know, to be either the winner or loser in a confrontation with someone else. All of, in fact, all of the competitive aspects of the game, where you uh, kind of jockey for control of a of a uh, a site designated Pokemon gym uh, near my office. The Flatiron Building is a gym. All those aspects. We love are, that building, by the way. Oh, it's a beautiful building. It's so I've, cool. I was very briefly the gym leader there. I was very proud. Nice. Um, <laughs> Good job. The, the, those aspects are kind of a, asynchronous. You can you can battle other players' Pokemon, but you're not kind of directly battling them. Their Pokemon that are kind of uh, left by them, and the game creates a copy. Okay. Uh, so they don't they don't want people you know feeling like oh I'm directly in competition with someone else. It's not they, a
1: zero sum game.
3: Yeah, yeah. The the kind of social social aspect of it is kind of entirely layered on top of the game by just the fact that it's ubiquitous and the fact that. Uh, you know it's pokemon it's something fun and light and so there's no kind of uber competitive feeling to it the way other multiplayer games like uh, call of duty sometimes bring out the worst in people by tapping into their competitive aspects in my experience if i'm hanging around uh say fdr's birthplace and playing the playing against the gym there someone who's even on a different pokemon team will come over and give me advice on how to how to do the gym battle so there's a uh, there's a sort of entirely user-generated communal aspect to it that I, I agree is kind of different from a game that forces you into that, but has been an interesting phenomenon. You wanted to know, though, earlier, whether I'd had any kind of connections that went beyond... Oh, yes.
1: Thank you for remembering.
3: <laughs> ...a sort of fleeting contact. I, You know, I got to say, I think the one that springs to mind is one uh, that involves someone I already knew, right? But... Uh, It's still I still think the game was kind of a uh, important opportunity for a deeper conversation. I had a had a long walk kind of down uh, the side of Manhattan that looks out towards New Jersey. And my friend and I were catching Pokemon, you know, every every few yards as we came across these Pokemon. And uh, in the meantime, we were having a conversation about what it means to be human and, you know, whether kind of God fits into that. It It was kind of. Weirdly deep conversation, and I think part of what helped is that we could always kind of turn back to this game we were playing, just like sometimes it's useful having an important conversation with someone while you're cooking or while you're knitting or while you have some, you know, other thing to be doing so that you have natural lulls and breaks and pauses and changes of level in the conversation. Uh, And I suppose this doesn't, you know, make Pokemon Go a different sort of thing than any other game that could be the occasion for this conversation. But I guess the exploratory aspect of it, uh, was an interesting, uh, addition to that, to that evening, right? That, uh, while we were going on this kind of virtual adventure, uh, tracking down these hidden monsters throughout our city, we were also kind of talking through, uh, what we were struggling with, with, uh, Questions of anthropology and theology and all that jazz. Oh, I think that answers my question then pretty well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, one thing I'm wondering: Are you? Would you make an argument to say that Pokemon Go is an intrinsic good that, or that it's just a good relative to, to other things that we experience? So, is it has it helped make our world a better place? Because without it, we would kind of be missing something. Or, or is it just better than the alternative? Better than people sitting at home playing video games? Better than people not interacting with each other at all? Um, it'd be better that they talk about Pokemon Go and share phone chargers than not at all.
3: Hmm. <clears throat> I mean, it's hard to hard to argue that it's an intrinsic good. Uh, I think what it does are you know a couple very a couple very kind of surprising yet helpful things. It has a kind of uh, re-enchanting effect on the civic spaces we inhabit. Uh, Is it the only thing that could do that? Certainly not, but it's kind of uh, amusing in a very uh, heartening way that this is what has done it, right? That, you know, we're kind of in the process of rediscovering things, that people are having these uh, positive experiences of interacting with strangers because of this game bringing Pokemon into the real world, so th- the things that it does that are good could be done by other things, and hopefully will be done by other things. And that's the the lesson I'd love to see people take from its uh, kind of astonishing success. Uh, you, you know that um, they say Pokemon Go is kind of uh, being downloaded more than Twitter or right. t- yeah. any, any app yeah. industry yeah. more than these apps, yeah. It's it's uh, incredible how much it reshaped things. And I think it will, you know, fade somewhat in popularity. I think it's definitely a trend that's has, like, a big interest in it that will peter out a little bit. But I think the the best thing we can take from the phenomenon of Pokemon Go is not a lesson like, oh, these millennials and their nostalgia or, you know, ah, people people will get obsessed with anything, I guess. But, like, what is it that caught people's attention about this game? What is it that got people obsessed with it? And are there aspects of that that are kind of uh, genuine goods we should we should seek to foster wherever we can, right? The aspects of teaching pe- lowering some of these barriers to social interaction that is spontaneous, uh, giving people permission to talk to strangers and have interactions, and also just uh, guiding people to discover the things that are kind of hidden treasures around the human spaces they inhabit
1: i want to pick up on your point about re-enchanting civic spaces yeah because i think there are sort of two two ways we can go with this and we should talk about both but the on the on the one level how does pokemon go do this and you talk about in your american conservative article how it has maybe suggested that the the creators of the game are not quite ready to reimagine the socio-spatial landscape because they'll have Poke stops at places where they shouldn't, you know, places that are wildly inappropriate like strip clubs or cemeteries. Um, yeah. So there's a specific question about how Pokemon Go achieves this that's worth diving into. But I think there's a, there's a broader question that we can move to about augmented reality in and of itself.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And Pokemon Go as a subset of that phenomenon, and what the implications are of augmented reality reshaping what you call the socio-spatial landscape that we
3: inhabit. <laughs> sure. I, everyone thought that for augmented reality to gain popularity, it would have to be some very fancy device. Google Glass was, you know, what they thought was going to bring augmented reality to the masses, right? right? And it didn't catch on. People no. were not interested in having. Uh, a layering of reality kind of strapped to their face like that. And kind of Pokemon Go, I think, in a way that surprised its creators, I think they were caught off guard by the way it caught on. Pokemon Go created this mass market augmented reality interest just by giving people things that, you know, tickled their nostalgia bone and kind of uh, empowered them to go around and uh, find... A kind of exploration and adventure in in the, just the regular world they already inhabited. So there's a way that Pokemon Go kind of layers another reality onto ours, right? Uh, uh, a kind of alternate reality. But part of that is more of a is more of a rediscovery of something that's that's already there. Okay. Certainly, certainly the way I tend to think of uh, Pokestops when they're correctly placed, and as you pointed out. There are places they shouldn't be it's partially kind of user generated where these Pokestops stops are, but okay. when a Pokestop stop is correctly placed, you know I, I think it kind of highlights the potential of something the kind of pre existing potential you know of something like a park to be a place where people from disparate walks of life come together and are uh, engaged in something of a community so yeah, what will augmented reality be going forward? that's kind of a a bigger question and one that hopefully hopefully Pokemon Go shows that the possibilities are broader than what we thought that augmented reality doesn't just mean uh uh we will put devices onto people's faces so that they can you know answer their email while they're walking right if augmented reality can interact more with the real reality that's already there uh then maybe augmented reality will be kind of more of a blessing than simply a kind of another source of technological distraction. That's at least the way I'd like as an optimist you know hope to see it develop.
1: No I think that's a good take on it that it's it's a broader uh, approach to augmented reality but it's really also a simpler one because as you mentioned people are no longer having VR or uh, augmented reality devices strapped to their heads they're just on their phones and and they're on their phones so that they can play a game right and they can play a game close to other people and make friends through doing so
3: Mm -hmm. uh yeah and i think kind of creating an atmosphere of play uh that's uh that's another kind of good aspect of what pokemon go has done and perhaps that will fade as there's kind of fewer people playing it but at this point if you spot someone on their phone you know you can often guess ah they're probably playing the same game that i am and then you tell them that there's a snorlax over in the nearby park
1: (laughs) perfect yeah and you can give them tips on how to catch it exactly so how many pokemon have you caught alexi
3: oh um i i should I, I could pull up what i have um give me a ballpark uh i am a, i'm a, like a level, level 15 trainer right now uh i've probably caught you know hundreds of kind of individual pokemon but as far as the species go i've got like um 80 or so
1: wow so more than halfway there
3: yeah, yeah, we'll see if I can catch them all. All right, they have, <laughs> best of they luck. They haven't told us where uh, the legendary birds are yet, though, so who knows? Man, I would check the sky if they're birds.
1: <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if you've totally convinced me, Alexi, but you've given me a lot to think about, and I've, I've definitely softened uh, on my attitude towards Pokemon Go. I at least see the merits of, of uh, what it can do, and uh,
3: yeah. That's, uh, that's my hope with all these pieces, right? Just kind of, if I can... Get people to you know hear it out, right? If I convince people to think just because something's popular doesn't mean it's bad, maybe there's something good to it, then I feel I've done my job.
1: Oh, definitely, and as you mentioned, you're an optimist, and we always like hearing from optimists, especially on these types of things. so
0: <laughs> well, and I wonder too if if there aren't more people saying the things that you're saying and reminding people about the good that can come from a game like Pokemon Go if it'll just go over people's heads too they won't even think about it either they'll be negative towards it or they won't think about it so i think it's good that you're pointing out this greater potential so that people can see oh well maybe these these goods can translate into other other arenas and we can find other ways to help create a, that that place that we're looking for
3: yeah absolutely so thanks oh thank you guys
1: All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We're here with our contributor, Joshua and Joshua, welcome back to the show. So good to be here. So as our resident, uh, we'll call you our resident neuroscientist since you've, uh, <laughs> you've done some work on neuroscience in your career, uh, including, by the way, the obligatory uh, experiments on rats, right? That is absolutely right.
0: Yeah, listeners will remember from season one when we talked to Joshua the first time about... His, his life story, including his experience with rats.
1: <laughs> yeah. So since that basically makes you our resident neuroscientist, uh, we thought we'd bring in on the show to talk to you about brain games. And our attention uh, to this topic was, um, or our attention about this topic was peaked this week when we saw a New York Times article talking about how to stave off dementia Uh, The title of the article is For Effective Brain Fitness, Do More Than Play Simple Games. And it's taking aim at these companies like Lumosity that market a product uh, in which you can uh, spend several hours a day or even a few minutes a day playing simple brain games in order to improve cognitive performance and potentially even stave off uh, illnesses like Alzheimer's. So, Joshua, what do you think about what the article says regarding Uh, the shortcomings or potential shortcomings, I should say, of these approaches to staving off dementia.
4: I mostly agree. Um, I will preface that with maybe a little helpful bit of background. For the last several hundred years, people have mostly believed that as you hit puberty and start to become an adult, the brain largely stops changing, just completely dead in its tracks, nothing else happens, and the scientific hypothesis for a long time was that there's this steady decline. And that was actually reinforced by a paradigm that we got from Descartes, basically his dualism um, between mind and body that led to the hypothesis behind a ghost in the machine that if you watch any artificial intelligence movie we'll wind up referencing. People, modern scientists now are saying that Descartes single-handedly did more to slow the acceptance of neuroplasticity than any other philosopher. Because there were so many scientists that just refused to believe that a 50-year-old man could, when confronted with the difficult reality of losing a limb or becoming paralyzed, retrain his brain um, to use that cognitive real estate for other parts of his body.
0: So kind of like the old dogs can't learn new tricks. That was the the leading hypothesis about brains. For
4: hundreds of years, yes. So
0: now we think that brains can change, basically? Yeah,
4: absolutely. So the best book I've read on the subject and that I would recommend to anyone curious is by Norman Doidge. And he wrote a book called The Brain That Changes Itself. And it's a great overview of the modern literature going on in this area and he takes probably the most popular phrase to come out of the book that people will recognize is neurons that fire together wire together Um, kinda like that old phrase you know birds of a feather flock together but basically saying that anytime two events are going on beside each other in the brain if those neurons are firing at the same time usually they'll continue working together into the future and the, the reason rat studies come in is because we've tried to study things um, like fear and how to teach rats either to fear new things or to lose their fear of old things. Um, so it's ba- just basically associative memory exercises.
1: Now, I, I actually wonder whether or not it really was the accepted uh, belief for hundreds of years that the brain could not change because the practice of changing. Uh, the mind through habituation seems to be something that's found in classical philosophy as well, which is why Aristotle talked about the habituation of virtue. Virtue is not an act, but a habit.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Mostly what I was referring to was um, the hundreds of years post-Enlightenment era, um, when that kind of became entrenched. I certainly agree that there's a much longer and more historic literature about um, ways to change it, but... Ever, ever since we've been trying to map that within the body, um, not just using external signals of change, but understanding what happens physiologically um, to the brain and to the central nervous system throughout the body, that has been the biggest thing that is contested. Well,
1: bringing us back to this discussion about things like lumosity, uh, I was reading another article about their effectiveness from several years ago, uh, and it, it caught my attention that uh, the... The results really are mixed. So, what seems to be clear from these things is that they improve the subject's ability to do certain tasks. So, for example, uh, playing a game that involves a Sudoku, so uh, Sudoku-like exercise for uh, several minutes a day could improve the person's ability to,
2: ability play, to, play, sudoku. <laughs> to, to play Sudoku, a
1: very specific and uh, really probably useless task. Although, you know, unless you're just looking to have fun. But it doesn't necessarily apply to other areas of life. So in the same way, doing these Lumosity exercises might get you really good at doing a Lumosity exercise. Uh, so you could beat your friends in Lumosity exercises if you're competing in that.
0: <laughs> but apparently there's no science that says it translates to other Or, or at least there's no or... settled science that says that. Yeah. So,
1: you know, you can um, – Lumosity markets it as a sort of vetted, very scientific approach to improving brain cognition. And that's true – insofar as it improves your cognition in those specific tasks, but it doesn't necessarily help you in real life.
4: Yeah. I mean, so so much attention has been given to this area recently. I think even in 2015, the number one rated app on Apple's App Store, that prize was given to uh, another brain training um, app that essentially sends you a notification every day and gets you to do 10 minutes of this word training and different conceptual ways of looking at the world type things. And I think, I mean, they, they've they got a product to sell, right? So they're going to be like any company that is basically um, making any claims that they legally can and pushing the boundaries on what they can say. And obviously with how fast uh, the baby boomer population is retiring and how many of them uh, and their children and family members are concerned about loss of memory um that's a that's a huge market, so they're going to be um targeting them very specifically, saying with big claims on how much it can help but obviously, this hasn't been around long enough for there to be much very clear science on the long term changes and there are some people of the opinion like me that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And exactly like you said, if you want to get better at something, you need to practice specifically that activity. So if your goal is to um, you know, improve memory about certain things, there are other interventions uh, that don't require lumosity-type training um, that can help get you there.
1: Sure. I mean, uh, a couple things here. One, I don't want to sound like we're just picking on Lumosity because I actually think they've been fairly upfront in uh, talking to their customers about what we do and don't know about the science. So for example, if you go on their website, uh, scroll down a little bit, uh, they they talk about um, how their scientists did a big study with over 4,700 participants. And after 10 weeks uh, with one control group and one group doing Lumosity exercises, they found that the group that had been doing the Lumosity exercises had a higher score on an aggregate assessment of cognition. But then uh, they say there's still unanswered questions. Specifically, you know, these results are promising, but we need to do more research to find out if there really is a link between the improved assessment scores in that assessment of aggregate cognition that they talked about uh, and everyday tasks in a person's life. So, I mean, they're saying we, we think this is working, but really we can't say for sure. Maybe this is just sort of a uh, make sure their bases are covered legally, um, but it seems like they're being pretty upfront. The other thing I was going to say, Joshua, to your point about Uh, baby boomers coming of age and being really afraid of losing their memory i totally understand that because the thought of losing your mind before you lose your body is i think a really terrifying one i mean
0: well there's so much more research about alzheimer's coming out and you know cures for alzheimer's and let's do drives to fund alzheimer's research it's just like it's just something that people are more aware of i think than ever before it wasn't just like oh yeah my grandparents they kind of lost their memory no it's People are looking for diagnoses and looking for solutions.
1: Well, and there's – I think mm-hmm. there's another aspect of this too, which is that people are living longer. Yeah. But we have not in, – in, several years ago, uh, President Obama un, uh, uh, unveiled a big project to map the human brain. Um, the reason being that our, our science in uh, – our, our scientific advancement in neuroscience and understanding the human brain has lagged far behind – our understanding of the rest of the body. So we figured out how to help people live longer, but we haven't necessarily figured out how to keep their brains healthy as long. So I think dementia is something that's becoming more common. Now, this is anecdotal. I haven't seen the research to back this up, but yes, re- reasoning it's a newer through it, problem. this makes sense to me, yeah, that it's a newer problem because of this. I saw an article in The Atlantic several months ago about the, uh, the very, very high rates of dementia in Japan because the... Uh, population in japan has very high life expectancies Hmm. and so they live they basically outlive their brains um and so there's a very big dementia problem in japan and it's actually causing high depression rates among younger people in japan who are taking care of uh, parents and um facing opportunity costs and reduced wages in their own lives lives because they have to be at home giving full-time care to their parents etc
0: yeah that makes sense and
4: and Zach, I'm glad you mentioned the component about uh, specifically you know, where research dollars are being allocated, or the White House initiative. Um, and some people might have heard about that human brain project that you mentioned. Definitely people will remember the human genome project at the turn of the century, and how much attention that got. Um, but something that hasn't been talked about as much is essentially, I don't know if it even has an official name yet but the NIH has dedicated a quarter of a billion dollars to it, so I think we should give it one. Um, Essentially, I would call it the Human Wiring Project, and over the next six years, they're going to be giving out grants to different laboratories to trace um, basically the electrical stimulation of every area um, within the human body. And that's motivated... Um, based on recent discoveries of something you could call electroceuticals. So different from pharmaceuticals, which are basically drugs and pills that you swallow, electroceuticals is a new method we have of basically with very small current amounts stimulating um, the brain. And we're getting more and more accurate at stimulating very specific areas. So in people doing obesity research, you could stimulate the vagus nerve, um, And people will suddenly feel full, uh, you know, go from being hungry to full a minute later. Um, It's also made advances in the field of depression and alleviating lots of those symptoms. So I'm really excited to see where that field goes.
0: On a more positive note, in terms of how you can affect your brain health, I thought it was interesting that the more recent New York Times article that we were referring to at the beginning of the podcast was saying that even though they can't say that those brain games are, are... are leading to less dementia or better brain health. We can say that if you have a more holistic approach to to your brain health and your overall health, and really your just your your livelihood in general, your human flourishing, if you will, um, then you'll have better success in. In prolonging good health, and so they say things like you know playing board games with people, or being in a band, or um, reading books, or learning new concepts, and making yourself learn new things. I think, I think that's something that we don't encourage enough in people who are getting older because we kind of just let them you know either go to a nursing home where they feel isolated, and they said isolation is actually the worst thing that you can do for people who are when they're older. So I think just like that's that was just a good good thing to read because we its it's easy to just let older people get isolated when they and to just be set in their ways when they get to a certain age and especially in their 80s or something um, where it just feels like they their 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 life expectancy is um or where, where you, you're you not expecting them to live very much longer. But that's the time when you really need to be avoiding that those kinds of ruts and isolation and, and just giving them more interaction and helping them to maybe learn new things, if they're willing.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, we shouldn't miss the forest for the trees here. We can talk all day about how the jury is still out on things like lumosity brain games. But the fact is we have settled science that says what does stave off dementia is Maintaining involvement in activities and uh, specifically being social, like you said, Sally. I mean, in the words of David Brooks, the human
4: being is the social animal. Joshua, that's
1: for you, by the way. I know you're a big David Brooks fan. (laughs)
4: Um, I appreciate it. I don't know if you all heard, but uh, I got to meet him towards the end of this past semester here.
0: Oh, wow. You probably got your book signed. (laughs)
4: I, I sure did. One of the original copies of his first book. Nice. And, uh, I, was, yeah, I, was, I was I was picturing beautiful.
1: you. I was picturing you bringing your entire stack of David Brooks' collection. <laughs>
4: he he actually could um, let me have it because I bought it at a used bookstore in Philly on a John Jay field trip, which means he didn't get any royalties from it. Oh, nice. Oh,
0: wow. <laughs> well, I think he's right. I mean, in terms of picture picturing us as – describing us as social animals and I think even just watching my own grandparents um, pass away and just just deteriorate, it's, it's – I've seen, you know, I've seen the, the benefits of having them be more social and be more interactive, even if that's hard on the younger generations <laughs> because you don't want to hear their old stories again or you don't want to have to sit and listen to them talk really slowly, but – I think they deteriorate I've one of my grandfather's I think deteriorated more rapidly because he he allowed himself to be isolated and wanted to be isolated. So I guess just in practicality we should try to force ourselves to interact more with elderly people even if even if that's maybe not our gift.
1: <laughs> um and just a brief interjection here you guys know I love referencing aristotle i don't want to give david brooks too much credit because when he described man as the social animal he was <laughs> yeah. really just plagiarizing aristotle so he really, wasn't the
0: first one to say that definitely not yeah. that would be aristotle so. <laughs> Or we're political animals which for aristotle meant social <laughs> right exactly
4: it is a good book though um,
1: <laughs> it is for sure
4: so, so yeah i completely agree and the you know, watching my grandparents get into their 80s now and continuing a dialogue with them as they, um, as, as they experience different things with their health and start interacting with the healthcare system more regularly. At this point, my mom's dad is going to get blood transfusions uh, twice a week for a type of leukemia, um, but overall very fit for someone in his 80s. And we've had discussions about uh, precisely this topic like when you lose a very specific um, one of your five senses in old age, that cortical real estate that I referenced earlier is a helpful term because it can actually be readjusted for other purposes. So just like when someone who is born blind winds up having an incredible um, sense of smell or sense of touch, those areas in your brain that are usually used for a specific type of activity can get shifted around um, to other areas that you might become much stronger in. Um, so yeah. So they, they could have an augmented sense of,
1: they could have an augmented sense of smell or taste. They could also have a, an ability to use sonar echolocation to figure out where they are in space. If you listen to the podcast Invisibilia by NPR, uh, you'll, hear, <laughs> you'll hear a recent episode called how to become Batman. And it's about, a man wow. who who's born blind and taught himself how to navigate using echolocation. Yeah, just by
0: like clicking.
1: He clicks with his tongue. He can ride a bike. It's pretty amazing.
0: And now he wants to That's teach other blind cool. people to do the same thing. It's actually so. a
1: fascinating podcast for a whole lot of other reasons because they talk about how expectations shape outcomes in ways that we do not expect. And it's, it really made me reevaluate a lot of the the ways I think about the world. So we recommend that if you haven't <laughs> checked it out.
0: So a perfect example of what you were just talking about, Joshua. <laughs>
4: Absolutely. And for anyone listening who wants a really funny picture of how this works, you can Google something called the somatosensory homunculus. And if you've ever seen those weird putty pictures of the guy who has big hands, big feet, big head, huge tongue, but like tiny parts of the rest of your body, that is basically a mapped out version of how many different nerves you have in different parts of your body. So basically, how many, how many more senses um, you have in each square inch of your fingers, hands, feet, face, etc., compared to other parts of the body, that's how they represent it in the literature.
1: All right, we'll have to check out the somatosensory homunculus.
0: I think I'll need you to spell that first before I can Google it. It was it, my
4: favorite thing I remember from elementary school.
0: <laughs> wow, I guess I missed that.
4: Clearly, my elementary school education was deficient. So,
0: Well, thanks for coming on the show, Joshua. Thanks for talking to us about this and enlightening us on these New York Times articles.
4: Of course. It's always great to catch up with you guys.
0: We're back to wrap things up with episode four of Vernacular Podcast. Before we do, we just want to tell you to reach out to us via email, Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com.
1: Or find us on Twitter at Vernacular Pod or Facebook, slash vernacular podcast.
0: And if you want to do a lightning round, let us know because we would love to do more lightning rounds with listeners. We would, for sure.
1: Reach out to us in any one of the three aforementioned ways.
0: And do we have a question of the week for this week?
1: Have you ever had bulletproof coffee? And what do you know about the health effects of it? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's really good, and we want to drink it every
0: day. <laughs> but we are going to hold off on that until <laughs> further evidence tells us that we can. <laughs> right.
1: We're gonna. I think we're. I think it's gonna be our, we- our weekend drink.
0: Our weekend luxury.
1: Yeah. Nice. Saturday and Sunday mornings, we can have bulletproof coffee. Nice.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and look forward to next week.
1: For An Actual Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week.